The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Sounds of the Anteater Kingdom on 88.9 FM KUCI in Irvine. Hello there, my name's Shane Burke, and you're listening to Tech Talk on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, today, my guest is Justin Ma. He's a PhD candidate at uh, UCSD, and he's also graduating this month and will be a postdoc at UC Berkeley next year. Uh, Justin is here to discuss uh, algorithms with us, and uh, particularly a paper he wrote called Beyond Blacklists, Learning to Detect Malicious Websites from Suspicious URLs, and um, another paper he wrote that we kind of touch on briefly is Identifying Suspicious URLs, an Application of Large-Scale Online Learning. So it's a very fascinating interview. I hope you uh, uh, will stay with us for the hour. We're going to play a little bit more music, and we'll be back with Justin in just a few minutes. How exactly did you learn algorithm design, and what do you need to consider in terms of performance and CPU, CPU usage when you're actually building algorithms? So I would say that the kind of algorithmic uh, instruction or uh, knowledge that I picked up over time, that's uh, a lot of it came from classes, introductory classes um, that I took as an undergrad, but also um, a lot of things came from just experience as well. Uh, and I, I feel like experience is the uh, number, it's like that's the best way to learn a lesson about an algorithm or an approach to a problem because, you know, you're working on something that you care about, and it's important. And so it kind of hits you in the face uh, that you need to do something that, that's efficient and works well. And so uh, but the thing with trying to solve a problem is you want to be able to prototype something very quickly. Mm-hmm. And so often, like what I do, is I just use the most basic brute force thing uh, to at least get an answer, to get a rough approximation of whether my approach is going to work. So in the case of um, URL detection, uh, the you know the basic the basic thing might be using um, because in in the full in the full form of the system that um, we worked on at UCSD, you know we're processing millions of URLs um, and having to handle millions of features or characteristics of the URLs in order to train a classifier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a classifier being um, a an algorithm that helps you determine um, whether um, something is benign or malicious, something belongs in the positive class or negative class in machine learning terminology. So before we got to that step, we wanted to try things on a smaller scale, uh, which is what we did in the the KDD 2009 paper, Beyond Blacklists. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had a smaller set of data on the order of tens of thousands of examples, and we try... uh, what are called batch or offline learning algorithms. So in batch or offline learning, you're looking at all examples at once. And based on that, you train your classifier 
to you know, that best separates the malicious sites from the benign sites in that. And then using that classifier, you use that to classify or test um, on a separate set of data, the testing set. So, and those, um, you know, trying that basic approach, because batch algorithms are pretty well known, mm-hmm. uh, that first cut approach gives us an idea of whether um, our approach works. And in terms of uh, and going back to working with algorithms and considering efficiency, the first thing is to, um, I would say, just try something really easy, really simple, even though it's not the most efficient thing. So, in, in other words, don't focus on performance and all that junk until after you know it's actually going to work. Otherwise, you're just kind of wasting your time. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and performance, um, and a methodical way to go about improving the performance of something would be to, you know, once you have this baseline to be able to um, profile it. Because yeah. you need to know exactly you know, what parts of the pipeline, what parts of your system are slow. And then you can kind of pinpoint your efforts instead of trying to think about multiple possibilities, you know, trying to think about a whole system at a time without focusing on the individual components. Okay, that, that's very good advice for anyone that's interested in this sort of stuff. So, um, now what language did you actually write your algorithm in and why did you choose that one? Uh, for the, uh, yeah, so it's a funny thing because I did a lot of C, C++ programming as an undergrad, mm-hmm. but uh, as a grad student um, in systems, uh, systems being working on operating systems and networking research, I actually found myself doing more scripting. So things like Bash, um, I do a lot of uh, scripting in Ruby as well. Uh, Ruby, for those who aren't familiar, is a uh, you know, it's an object-oriented scripting language, uh, kind of like, um, and it's kind of in the same class as Perl and Python. Okay. Say, so, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, because what's happening is that uh, I'm using a lot of kind of utilities that are already built into the Linux operating system, mm-hmm. you know, especially a lot of network, network utilities. And I'm just trying to, you know, paste them together, and then at the same time, uh, tie that into some of the more machine learning algorithmic stuff I do, which I actually code in MATLAB as well. So it's kind of a kind of a giant um, soup of you know a few scripting languages, uh, and it gets the job done. Okay. I think the thing one one important lesson that I've learned um, uh, along the way in grad school, I, I had this a, a senior grad student told this to me, which was. Well, you know, the philosophy of Unix is to develop powerful programs from lots of smaller, simpler programs. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of, um, it's, it's an interesting approach because it encourages you to reuse and, uh, you know, to reuse, not to try to develop a He-Man program, like a single monolithic He-Man program every time, mm-hmm. but rather to be a little more efficient about how you put things together. Yeah. A little bit yeah. more modular, I guess. Yeah, modular. Um, see, when you say modular, I think of something that's, you know, very, that can, that can be, you know, maybe a little brittle depending on how one module interacts with the other. I was, uh, but then I think about my own code. <laughs> it actually has a little bit of that, has a little bit of that flavor, unfortunately, as well. But, um, yeah, but, but keeping things, keeping things, uh, I don't want to say low level because low level implies 
assembly and having to deal with the details all the time. And and that's contrary to what I'm trying to encourage, which is, you know, you've got this subroutine, this black box that already does what you need to do. Now just think about the high-level purpose of that program and incorporate it into your own stuff. Oh, okay. Either, as a, either yeah, either, either as a function call or maybe as a, you know, you write a bash script that in turn calls this other program that, you know, queries the DNS information for a hostname. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, so, so, you know, be uh, reusing things and kind of, kind of uh, making sure that things have their function and that they're, I want to say, isolated. Yeah, modularized, I think, is a, is, ends up being a good word. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Now, I, you already kind of touched on uh, what a batch algorithm is, but uh, I don't know if you made the distinction between online and batched algorithms. You may have. Did you? Uh, I did not, and I think uh, thanks for definitely thanks for reminding me um, because that's a very important distinction to make. So, I mentioned that batch algorithms you see all the data at once, and you try to train a classifier based on that. There's a problem with that, though. Uh, in practice, when you're seeing, you know, if you're a company like Google. Or Microsoft or Yahoo, you're looking at you know, millions of data points, perhaps billions of data points, and being able to load all that data in memory at once, it's pretty cumbersome. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not, you're not going to find enough machines to be able to do that. And so uh, the idea behind online learning is instead of training on, uh, and try, instead of trying to train a classifier on all the data at once, you instead look at one data point at a time. And that's a key differentiator. So you're, you're incrementally updating your classifier one point at a time as each point gets introduced. And so this gives the potential, um, well, it gives the potential for having a classifier that's uh, low overhead and has fast compute because, you know, you're only looking at one example at a time. You look at it once and you discard it, you go on to the next one, and you repeat the process for every for every data point, um, and so that's how uh, online ha- gives you a performance benefit. But it also gives you uh, kind of an algorithmic benefit as well because you're looking at examples over time. You know, over you'll you might train on some examples today, and then you'll get some new examples tomorrow, mm-hmm. and the day afterwards, a week afterwards, a month afterwards, and if you're in the batch case where you're trying to look at all the data at once and you're trying to retrain your classifier you know, once a day, then you know, if a new point comes in, you're going to have to start the whole training process over again. Whereas in online learning, because it's incremental, you can keep your existing classifier but update it with the latest data. Let, let's just talk a little bit about what you actually did in uh, the Beyond Blacklist paper. Um, Specifically, you were kind of looking at URLs and then uh, determining whether they were malicious or not. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so describe kind of why, um, what the advantage of only looking at a URL and not uh, the whole page or or that contains a link or the page that it's referencing. Mm. Okay, so I think that um, just to start off with, I have, I'm actually working uh, with a student at UCSD on a follow-up where we do classification based on the content of the page. Uh, 
because we feel like there's there's some extra classification power that we can get from considering web page content, uh, but there's some extra extra tricks that we have to do to be able to make that work. That said, um, one of the, the primary advantage of just looking at the URL and the information associated with the URL is a performance or a query overhead at least, because you know when you're fetching a page, you have to go ahead and actually contact the server. Whereas if you're collecting other information about the URL without visiting it, um, that would be a lower overhead operation. So performance is one thing. The second thing has to do with uh, cloaking. So cloaking is when a malicious site gives different clients different content based on where the client is from. And there's a and criminals have a big motivation to do this. So, you know, suppose you're an antivirus company, or you're, say, say you're Google, and you're trying to survey the sites out there and determine whether things are good or bad. Well, if you're a criminal, and you know that Google machines or antivirus company machines come from a certain part of the internet, then you can serve them the nine pages. Heck, you can probably even serve, serve them something innocuous like CNN.com, right? Yeah. But for other people, for for other people who are potential victims, you serve them your the malicious site that you were originally intending to host. And so, if you are in the position of a of a security company trying to train a classifier solely based on content, then cloaking presents an obstacle because you'll be presented with content that's different from what potential victims are going to see. If you're just joining us, uh, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Shane Burke. This is Tech Talk. And joining me is Justin Ma. He's a PhD candidate at UCSD, and he's going to be uh, graduating very soon and going to UC Berkeley um, as a postdoc, right? And uh, he authored a paper called Beyond Blacklist, Learning to Detect Malicious Websites from Suspicious URLs. And uh, basically all he did, as the title implies, is he looked at uh, URLs and determined whether that website was malicious. And it's a very uh, unique approach to this. Um, so the question I wanted to ask you, um, in what ways can a website be malicious? Is it always sort of um, trying to steal people's information or can it be downloading malware? What, what, what are the possibilities in terms of a malicious website? What makes a malicious website? Sure. Um, so there are a number of things, and in terms of the scale of badness, um, they'll cover a, a bit of a spectrum, from things that are kind of shady but don't directly harm you to things that are you know, downright nasty. So uh, kinds of sites that I group together as being malicious are um, sites that sell illicit goods. So... Those are these are the kinds of sites that say try to sell you fake Viagra, mm -hmm. or counterfeit watches, or pirated software, and we typically get these kinds of links to these sites through spam campaigns, where you know we get spam and says hey you know I'm selling this Viagra really cheap you know, click on this link, <laughs> and so um, there's there's that genre of site. Now, I've actually talked to people in industry who like to, like to um, not consider spamming sites as a kind of 
bad site. And I think we do that primarily to avoid lawsuits. Mm. But I, for the average consumer, for the average web user, I would, I would group that into being in, in the group of malicious sites. Yeah. Um, and it's not only through email, right? You might see these things through um, a web search result that was you know, artificially promoted to a higher rank. Uh, and it turns out to be something that's wasting your time because they're selling you, you know, illicit goods. Yeah. So that's one genre of site. Uh, the second genre are phishing sites. So phishing spelled with a P-H-I-S-H uh, instead of an F-I-S-H. Uh, these sites are trying to steal private, your private data. And so they do this by mimicking existing legitimate sites. So let me give you some concrete examples. So, you know, a lot of people use Facebook and they'll type in their username and password to log in. You might get an email message that says, hey, you, you should probably check this, check this photo out or someone, someone tagged you in a photo and so you click on the link. But then instead you're directed to a phishing page which looks almost like the real Facebook page. Mm-hmm. And it'll ask you for your username and password. But because it's not the real Facebook site, because it actually belongs to a criminal, they'll log that information to steal your credentials and then to log into your Facebook account later on and wreak havoc. So phishing attacks are pretty nasty in that regard, and that's why we consider them malicious. Uh, the third genre of sites include Trojan downloads. So Trojan because the program that you're downloading purports to be something innocent. Like it might be a screensaver. Or it might be one of those electronic postcards. Say, oh, you know, download this, execute it on your computer. Uh, but like a Trojan horse, it ends up uh, doing some nasty things to your computer once you've let it in. So we consider that um, as uh, another major genre of malicious sites because what will happen is that a lot of criminals use that as a vector for propagating uh, malicious stuff, well, for propagating malware in order to compromise machines. And so you know, the, the Storm, the storm uh, botnet is a famous example. For those who aren't familiar with the term botnet, botnet is basically a, a network of compromised machines or bots. And the primary, primary purpose of botnets are to you know, send spam or to extract private information or to conduct denial of service attacks against people. So, but to expand the botnet, to expand its membership, you have to infect new computers. And Trojan download sites are a major way of doing that. So, and then finally, uh, the fourth genre of malicious sites we consider are drive-by downloads. Sites that don't require active client participation um, in order to achieve infection. Basically what happens is that drive-by download sites contain some code, maybe some maliciously crafted JavaScript or some other things, maybe an image, where all a user has to do is visit the site. And then that malicious code will exploit a vulnerability in the browser in order to make the browser you know, execute code that the criminal chooses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
and so that's that's the that's the fourth major genre of malicious site we consider. But we all, you know, we want to avoid visiting the, all those sites if possible. So um, that's why we group them all together. Um, so now, how how could our listeners see what you've done? in the real world? Um, like, would it be a toolbar on, on a web browser? Would it be something you bought from, like, one of the uh, virus protection companies? How could your algorithm actually be used in the real world? Ah, uh, glad you asked. Glad you asked. So, a couple of major ways um, they can be used. The first I'll describe is a toolbar. So, for example, and I've, I've implemented a proof of concept, um, but I haven't had time to maintain it just because, you know, graduation... Yeah. Uh, definitely uh, creeps up on you. But, yeah, so the idea behind a toolbar would be that you're about to visit a site and, say, you mouse over a link. And then that link, before you click on it, that link is sent to a server that we run that stores the classifier. And so what happens is that when the server, the reputation server, receives a URL from the user's browser, it'll compute, it'll use that classifier to compute a rating, saying that, well, I think it's 93% likely to be safe, or I think it's, you know, 97% likely to be malicious. And it'll send that information back to the user. And after that, the user can make a determination, well, you know, this thing's predicted to be benign, or this thing's predicted to be malicious, I'll click the, on the link accordingly, or not click on the link. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually in our prototype, we provide a little additional information, like saying, you know, these are the features, these are the characteristics of the URL that we think um, are highly, mali- highly malicious, and here are the characteristics of the URL that make it less malicious. You know, kind of giving you a, um, an under-the-hood reasoning for why the classifier came to that determination. So things like, well, this domain name was registered very recently. Mm. So that's considered a malicious feature. Or, well, it's being hosted out of this particular internet service provider. And that's that I think is kind of malicious. Or it might contain certain tokens in the URL, such as, you know, oh, you know, this is a login page for eBay. So that's like it's likely to be a phishing page, and various other things. Um, I, I can get into more uh, detail about the features themselves, but I uh, just want to give you a rough idea of what a user might see when they're using a toolbar. Yeah. So now, uh, would it actually return a probability, like a percentage, or would there be a threshold and say either this this site is malicious or it's not? What, oh, what would uh, you actually return to the user? Yeah. So in the in the proof of concept, we return a probability. Okay. At the moment. Okay. So that's one way. Uh, the toolbar is one way that um, our system would have you know, real-world practical impact. Um, the second thing, actually, is that we, we got our data, our feed of malicious URLs, uh, from a webmail provider. And you know, over the past year, uh, we've kind of turned our... We've let them, you know... Uh, We've collaborated with them, and actually what's happening is that the webmail providers are using our system on their production email filtering system. So what's happening is that 
you know, they have a system for filtering spam. And they identify URLs in spam as being malicious or not. Mm-hmm. And now they're actually using our algorithm for doing that. Okay, so, so... I can't say who. I cannot say who. Okay. It's, um, you know, that that's kind of has to be under wraps, but um, it's being used there for real. So and it's, it's... I'm sorry. Go oh, ahead. yeah, no. Uh, I was just about to say, like, and it's, you know, processing, you know, billions of uh, emails, presumably billions of URLs per day. Okay, so it um, can be used by consumers and by... Uh, by providers on on the back end and exactly. users might not even know about it but it's still there to protect them in a way um, exactly. uh, by the way I, I just want to remind you that you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine I'm Shane Burke this is Tech Talk and I'm talking with Justin Ma he's a PhD candidate at UCSD and he's going to be going to um, uh, UC Berkeley very soon at, after he graduates and uh, he wrote a paper called Beyond Blacklist learning to detect malicious websites from suspicious URLs. Um, so now I kind of want to get into the kind of the specifics of, of the blacklist paper. Um, mm-hmm. So you used, uh, just for people's knowledge, you used lex- lexical features and hostname features. Um, and to analyze the URL, you kind of used a, a, what you call the bag of words approach to mm-hmm. break it up by common delimiter, delim- excuse me, <laughs> delimiters in uh, URLs. So, uh, what's kind of the purpose of using the bag of words approach? Ah, okay. So, um, just to give a little more uh, background on what a bag of, pro- bag of words approach entails. Um, so, let's take the lexical or the text-based features, the URL, as an example. Mm-hmm. So, in a URL, we see tokens. You know, uh, dot com, you know, com, dot com is a token. Um, and... Every other word that appears in the URL is a token. And so we want to be able to say that, oh, well, this URL contains this token or it doesn't contain that token. And we represent that actually as a a bit vector, where every entry in the bit vector corresponds to a token in the URL. Okay. Uh, And so the the quote-unquote bag of words uh, features means that you create a new entry for every word that you encounter. So it's almost like you've got a, a dictionary with a vocabulary that keeps on growing over time because you see new words over time. Mm-hmm. And you need that. You need to let it grow so that you can account for new features during classification. And so uh, we use bag of words features for lexical features, but we also use a, uh, a bag of words style approach for enumerating uh, say ISPs as well. So let's say that we see an ISP. We can treat the ISP identifier as a word itself. And so as we see more and more ISPs over time, our, our, if you, if you, if you may, our vocabulary of ISPs keeps growing. Mm-hmm. So that's like a bag of words approach to identifying ISPs. And we, we do this, we keep growing our features, the amount of features we consider over time, because things change. You know, it's it's part of the the natural arms race cycle that criminals and security experts are entangled in. Because what happens is that these sites get taken down, and subsequently criminals have to create new sites that have different features 
from the old sites. And so security experts have to keep, have to kind of play catch up. You have to account for new features over time. Um, but hopefully, if you're using a machine learning approach, that there are enough common patterns that you can anticipate from the new features that you find. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, and again, just for people's knowledge, uh, just to kind of explain like the, uh, the host name features that you looked at, you looked at IP address properties, um, the who is uh, properties, domain name properties, and geographic properties to analyze um, the host name part of the address, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, so then you applied various uh, classification models to the lexical and host name features after the URL was already encoded into the, the feature vectors that you were talking about. Yes. So uh, can you kind of explain that process and what a feature vector is? Because I, I come from a neurobiology background, so I, I don't even study computer science. So I'm oh. a little unsure about what a feature vector is. And oh, okay. you talked a little bit about the, uh, the bit encoding I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. No, great question. And uh, I, I get this question even from machine learning folks as well. They say, how do you turn a URL into a vector? And I think I'll explain, I'll start with um, the sort of, there are two parts to this. One is translating raw data, raw data associated with the URL into uh, a feature vector, a vector format. And the second part is, um, you know, how a classifier interprets those vectors into training uh, a classifier that will help us distinguish good websites from bad websites. I'll start with the second part first. So, with classification, oftentimes we want to represent uh, these, these URLs as belonging as being associated with points in a very high dimensional space. So, you know, imagine you've got 3D space and you've got points scattered around, but the points will be different colors, right? Red points representing malicious websites, green points representing benign websites. And now you want to be able to slice the space in half so that most of the red points sit on one side and most of the green points sit on another side. Mm-hmm. Uh, in concrete terms, this means uh, training a hyperplane or a linear separator that helps us cut the space in half to separate good websites from bad websites. And there are there are many different ways of being able to train that hyperplane, being able to train the linear classifier, uh, which I can go into shortly. Uh, That's actually one of my questions, so we'll get into that. Yeah, yeah, So, uh, which we'll get into shortly, but the key idea here is that Every website corresponds to a point in high-dimensional space. So, you know, once you have that uh, concept in mind, uh, then talking about a classifier and how it works becomes easier. Now, getting it to become a point in that high-dimensional space in the first place is, um, you know, that that's that that's a process that takes a little bit of domain expertise because you need to know how to translate something like um, a domain name registration date into a number. Mm-hmm. Because a vector is just a series of numbers. Um, they might be bits or binary, which are, you know, they can either take a, a value 0 for off or 1 for on, or it might be 
a real valued feature, uh, a continuously valued feature, which might take a value, you know, 0, 0 0.5, or anything in between, um, positive and negative, and so on. And so, uh, there is a process uh, that we go through to translate those features, uh, features of the URL, into a mathematical vector. Okay. Um, so now, uh, can you kind of describe the classifiers that you used on the feature vector and um, in terms of what it actually does and um, if they have any strengths and weaknesses, which they do because you, you, you evaluated um, which classifier would be best in your paper. Sure. So can you sure. just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I can. Um, and do you want me to talk about the um, about online classification as well, or? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, because uh, didn't your later paper um, touched on that, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. The later later paper talked about the, it was the relative benefits of using online yeah. classifiers over batch classifiers. But um, I can start with the batch classifiers. Okay. Um, so the idea here is that so you want to slice the space in half. You want to create a plane that separates positive examples, malicious sites, from negative examples or benign sites. And, you know, how do you do that given the data that you have? Well, in the case of, say, you know, religious regression, one of the, the batch algorithms we consider in our uh, Beyond Blacklist paper, you want to create a plane that you know, can maximize the likelihood that the plane um, classifies a point correctly. And what happens is that you, you want to maximize this likelihood for all the points in your data set, and that becomes a function, right? It'll be, uh, you know, the summation of likelihood functions of, of each point being classified by the weight vector, and but the key point here is that you have a function and that you want to minimize it, right? Mm -hmm. Or uh, sorry, in this case, actually, you want to maximize it. And what you do at that point would be say, you know, what's called a gradient ascent, uh, which is kind of like taking the derivative of that function, okay, and then walking along that derivative to maximize the the likelihood function. Okay, I see. Yeah, yeah, and, and the other algorithms operate in a similar way. Like the support vector machine, for example, it has an objective function that it's trying to minimize. And, um, you know, once you have that, once you're able to formulate it as a function, then the optimization method you have, you know, that's up to you, uh, whatever choice you make. But the... The difference between the support vector machine and logistic regression is that the support vector machine, it's trying to optimize for different criteria. It's trying to find a plane that kind of separates the good points and the bad points with a maximum margin. Like, you want to find the gap um, or the, the best fitting gap between good and bad points and place the plane right in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I don't. I won't go into the details of that uh, on this program here. And support vector machines are very well studied as well. So um, I encourage listeners to take a look at that as well. But 
what will happen is that you know it, it has that criteria. Um, it'll try to choose the weight vector, the plane, that satisfies that criteria as best as possible, and then use that for classification later. Um, and this will actually lead me into the online algorithms, if you don't mind me yeah, go ahead. Uh, describing that as well. So, for the batch algorithms, we have an objective function. We're going to try to find a plane that helps us satisfy that, objection, uh, that objective function. But here we're looking at all the points at once. Now, in the online setting, you're actually seeing one point at a time. Yeah. So, let me give you the case um, described to you, kind of at a high level, how the simplest of the online algorithms works, which is the perceptron. So, um, imagine you've got an empty space. You've got a plane that's kind of, you know, you have, you have a weight vector that describes a plane. It's not really initialized to anything yet. And now let's imagine the first point comes in. And it represents a malicious site. So here you want to orient your plane so that the malicious site sits above the plane. Okay, so okay. that's one point. Yeah. But now your second point comes in, and it's, it's benign. Now you shift your plane. Now you shift your um, plane so that you can you can uh, classify that example correctly. Let's suppose that it came in but it also sat above the plane. Uh-huh. So now you shift your plane so that the point will sit so that the benign point will sit below it. And hopefully the 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 malicious point is still sitting above the plane. And so now the next example comes in, and, you know, maybe it's uh, malicious, but you, pu- you classified it correctly, so you don't have to adjust the plane at that point. But then the next, the next benign example comes in, and you misclassify that, because now it's sitting above the plane along with the, uh, the malicious example. And so now you shift your plane to be able to correct for that as well, so that hopefully the benign points sit below the plane and the malicious points sit above the plane. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a, that's a very, uh, that's an oversimplified um, uh, description of how online learning of a linear classifier would work. Um, but what's happening mathematically is that there are different criteria that were being optimized. The amount that the plane is shifted is going to change as well um, between different algorithms. So uh, and so basically, you know, you're kind of iterating, and uh, you you keep adjusting your threshold level, that plane. Uh, mm-hmm. So you you're classifying everything appropriately in the online um, example. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, and, and the key thing though is that you're making your judgment based on the latest point that came in. Okay. You don't have a record of the previous points because you've already discarded them. Oh, I see. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that's the key difference. That's All the right. key difference right here. So I. Uh, you might have noticed me saying, um, you know, hopefully that the malicious and the benign are on different sides of the plane. Yeah. Uh, and I wanted to emphasize that because, you know, you don't, the, the online classifier doesn't remember that it saw that malicious point before. Okay. That information is already encoded in its classifier, mm-hmm. but you don't explicitly know that there was a point at this location in space at I that see. previous time. I see. 
Yeah. Um, now, uh, so you used uh, various combinations of, uh, as far as your sources of, of data come from, you used uh, various uh, uh, places that categorize things as malicious and various places that categorize them as safe. What was the purpose of doing that for your control? Oh, okay. Uh, this is referring to the Beyond Blacklist papers. Yeah, correct? yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. That was just to see that um, we could get that the results uh, that the results uh, applied to just different data set. It's, it's, it's sort of a statistical significance kind of thing. Yeah. Where you just want to make sure that it works across different scenarios. Um. Uh, let's see. And uh, you found that the lexical and host, la- host name approach had the lowest error rate, um, and it was consistent for all the data sources. But um, you also found that the error rates were not significantly affected um, if you remove the who is and blacklist from consideration uh, mm-hmm. in the blacklist paper. Right. Did, did you expect that? I, I was kind of amazed by how you can just look at lexical features in a URL and have a pretty good error rate as to whether it's malicious or not. Ah, right, right. So, yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and um, I'll go into a little background about that, because I think this is, this is, this is kind of important. So, um, among the features that we consider for classification are uh, blacklist features. We actually query blacklists for a given URL, and use that, the responses, as input into the classifier, along with other features, to make a determination for whether a website is malicious or not. So someone might say, well, that's cheating, you know, because you're already using a blacklist for classification. But the truth is that blacklists help with uh, a fraction of the URLs, any, you know, 25 to maybe 50% of the URLs are probably already in blacklists, the malicious URLs are already in blacklists. But that leaves a whole, you know, 50 to 75% of URLs that aren't covered by it. So you need to use other information to be able to um, make a determination. So blacklists, you know, whether we should include it or, or exclude it, that's something we wanted to test. Mm-hmm. Uh, as for who is information, so who is is synonymous with domain name registration. So when you do a who is query, say you type in um, at a Linux prompt, who is uh, CNN.com, you'll get a whole bunch of information back, like when, when the domain name was registered, who, is, who it was registered to, the registrant, as well as who was handling registration, the registrar. So um, that provides a lot of useful information, but there's a problem with that. Uh, of all the host-based features that we use for classification, whose features have the highest query overhead? Mm. Because the whois system is not, it's not very structured. It's not like DNS or the domain name system where... Uh, which is responsible for converting uh, domain names, you know, such as google.com or cnn.com or uci.edu, into IP addresses that our machines can then interpret and then visit and then connect to. Um, the DNS infrastructure is meant to handle high volumes, and so those queries are very quick. Uh, and we make extensive use of those uh, for our classifier. But as for who is, uh, registrars usually don't anticipate high volume queries for who is. In fact, a lot of people will rate limit things, keeping the number of queries from a certain host 
to below a certain daily quota. Mm. And it, Hulu's quarters can take anywhere between one second, three seconds, or maybe longer to return, or they might not return at all. So, you know, given that, given that it takes such a long time for a Hulu's query to return, given that registrars are not so happy about receiving high-volume Hulu's queries, you know, we want to ask, well, how much do we lose by excluding the information as well? Yeah. And so that motivates the the last bar that we consider, sorry, the last experiment that we consider in that particular um, experiment, which is, you know, what if we exclude who is information and blacklist simultaneously? Do we do much worse? And we don't. And I think the reason I think that, that we don't do much worse is that, um, you know, is that a lot of the host-based, other host-based features, such as, uh, you know, ISP identifiers make up for that. Because that's sort of, um, like, if you already know that there are bad pockets in the internet, mm-hmm. then, you know, if, if bad activity tends to congregate together, then those features, you know, those ISP identifiers can be good, get traction, as well as the other features that are there as well. Um, so, uh, can you just talk a little bit about uh, the false positive and, and negative error rates that, uh, because with, with your approach, you can kind of adjust for that, right? Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, the, so for those who aren't familiar, um, false positives, in our case, in this application, are benign websites that were mistakenly uh, identified as malicious, and false negatives are malicious websites that were mistakenly identified as being benign. And these are significant for different reasons. So, um, I know a lot of I know a lot of uh, companies out there are very wary about false positives because if you identify, say, you know, a very popular site as a very popular benign site as being malicious, then you might expect um, litigation later on. Mm. Yeah, and also you don't want to annoy the user by blocking things that are typically considered good. Yeah. Right. So in that case, you want to adjust the threshold because our classifier spits out a rating. You want to adjust that threshold above which we consider something malicious to probably be a little on the higher end so that you might, yeah, you might miss some malicious sites, but the ones that you do classify as being malicious are for certain malicious. So that's an argument in favor of minimizing false positives. Um, so on the other, oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah, I was about to say, like, on the other hand, false negatives, um, if you let, have too many false negatives, though, you know, then you're not uh, classifying enough malicious sites. Yeah. Uh, and that can be a problem. Then you're exposing the user to risk as well. That trade-off is, you know, there's always a debate on which side you should err on in terms of that trade-off. But I think the industry, the practice in industry is to keep false positives low like on the order of maybe a tenth of a percent or even lower than that. Um, so we're, we're at the end of um, our time now. Uh, I just wanted to ask you one quick question. So 
if people are interested in learning more about algorithms or computer science, uh, what do you suggest they do? You know, go to a community college, take some classes, or 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 what? Because hmm. not all of them might be. You know, we have a lot of community members that listen to our show too, not just computer science people here at UCLA. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I hope I didn't lose too many people. Oh no, no, no. They're they're pretty uh, pretty on top of it. Because nice. we've talked a lot about uh, various programming things and security and stuff uh, mm-hmm. before, so oh, they're, they're pretty so, educated. Great, great. That's wonderful. Um, yeah, as for people who are interested uh, in picking it up as a hobby, man, I think the thing for me is was writing a game. Okay. And it could be something very simple. It could be a text-based game. And depending on what you want it to do, uh, you might have to look up different algorithms or think about different algorithms for being able to implement the kind of feature that we were thinking about. Um, and, yeah, depending on what features you want, things can get pretty complex. Like, if you wanted to implement a map in your game, then, you know, you're going to have to think about data structures mm-hmm. and how do you represent rooms in the map and so on. So game programming, I think, is an avenue for uh, exploring, exploring these things. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Justin. I really appreciate it. I apologize. Um, just for the record, last week we had to replay a show because I, uh, I had a dentist appointment that I completely misscheduled, and I had to uh, reschedule on Justin, and I really appreciate you uh, coming on again. Um, you know, it, it, it was uh, definitely a great interview. I, ha- I learned a lot and uh, had a lot of fun talking to you, and I wish you the best of luck at UC Berkeley. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Shane. Uh, thanks for inviting me on the program. Um, had a great time, and... Yeah, you know, um, if anyone has any questions, uh, they're more than welcome to email me. Okay, great. Um, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll put your email then uh, up on the website. Okay, uh, once again, thank you, Justin. This is Justin Ma. He uh, wrote two papers, one, uh, Beyond Blacklist, Learning to Detect Malicious Websites from Suspicious URLs and Identify Suspicious URLs an application of large-scale online learning. Those are the two papers that we discussed today, um, and he's a... Uh, uh, graduate student at UCD, UCSD and he's going to be going to UC Berkeley uh, for postgraduate work. So once again, thanks again, Justin. Thank you. Bye. Bye.